What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Masir Mamodu is an analyst at Adaptive Capital and recently graduated from Columbia University. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of understanding money, scarcity as a driver of value, why gold used to be money, why Bitcoin is the digital gold, an analysis of Bitcoin's future market cap, and the idea of Bitcoin as stored time. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got a Masir here. Uh, I'm super excited to do this because um, I previously recorded a podcast episode with your brother who came in and presented the bull case for Bitcoin. Uh, And I think uh, it is safe to say that that was a widely popular episode. Um, And you're here to talk about kind of the bull case for money and why Bitcoin is better money. So thanks so much for coming in to do this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Pomp. Absolutely. Uh, Before we get started, let's do your background first, and then we'll get into kind of money, why it's important and, and where we're going with it. Sure. So um, I actually recently graduated from college. I studied financial economics at Columbia University. Uh, all throughout my academic career, I was mostly interested in startups, building different apps for iOS, Android. Uh, and one of my projects was basically kind of somewhat relying on uh, using the face- Facebook's API for uh, for just like for its operations. and. There were limitations that were imposed by Facebook and that made me really realize the appeal of decentralization and ever since then I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and here I am. <laughs> I love it. All right, so uh, it's very impressive to me how young you are yet how well you understand the importance of money. Give us your high level overview of just like why is money important and why is the historical context important? Well, I think that one of the biggest problems in the modern world is that everyone is literally obsessed about money. They stress over money all day long. They literally work most of their day for money, but they don't understand how money works, uh, why it functions, and uh, why, uh, what are the necessary um, criteria for it to function. So. I think that the biggest virtue that Bitcoin has provided for me and for millions of other of other people is uh, it really opened our eyes to various uh, previously neglected subjects such as monetary economics that allow you to uh, appreciate uh, what money uh, for what it's worth and how it's supposed to work. So I was never a gold bug or anything like that before, but delving into the Bitcoin rabbit hole really taught me to appreciate Austrian economics and what the gold standard meant and etc. And a lot of people, frankly, they are confused about what Bitcoin is and that is understandable because money in the modern world is it's a complicated topic and oftentimes unnecessarily so, but it is made difficult to understand. But it wasn't like that in the, in, in the past. It wasn't like that because back in the day people used gold as we all know and they use gold for a reason 
And the reason being that gold had, it was the most scarce asset, basically. Uh, it was most limited in its relative supply, which meant that you could rely that its supply would be constant over time. And basically the share of the total gold supply that you owned would stay relatively the same throughout time. Therefore, your uh, wealth could not be diluted over time. So one of the things I want to ask you about, and, and really I'm excited about this because I feel like you can teach me a lot, right? Because you, you have an understanding of thought a lot more about some of this stuff than I have. Gold is scarce by nature, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's hard to um, dig up from the ground. It's hard to find all, all of these things. But it is not artificially scarce, meaning that we actually don't know how much gold exists under the ground or, or in the world, right? We, we constantly find new gold and, and dig it up. It's hard to do it, but but we can do that. So it's um, scarce within reason, right? Yes. Bitcoin is different. Bitcoin yeah. is not only hard to produce from an energy consumption standpoint and, and um, kind of the algorithmic difficulty and all that, but it's also artificially capped. And so help me understand from a gold perspective how people have thought historically about, you know, when somebody just finds like a huge deposit of gold, mm -hmm. does that have price impact or do we just generally believe in the narrative of gold is scarce and whether there's a, a find of a large deposit or not, you know, bit, or, uh, gold kind of stays constant in value? So, yeah. So, as I already said, uh, gold is the least abundant stable element in Earth, Earth's crust. Uh, and the important thing is to realize that it has been mined and dug out for thousands of years. So, even if today or yesterday somebody were to find a relatively large uh, amount of gold somewhere in the ground, dug it out, that wouldn't make a big difference because the amount of gold that has already been dug out is huge. So mm -hmm. that would be a little, literally a drop in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the uh, beauties of gold is the fact that we have used it for so long that the existing uh, stock is so big that if you increase the flow, yearly flow, even a little bit more or whatever, it's not going to have a big impact. Yeah. So, so explain stock to flow. I don't think a lot of people actually understand what that means. And this is a very important concept for what we're going to talk about when we compare gold to Bitcoin as well. Yeah, absolutely. So stock to flow, it's basically a ratio of the amount of uh, the good that already exists in the world. For example, the amount of the total amount of gold that has already been dug out and that exists uh, in the world. Uh, as opposed to the amount of gold that is being produced and mined every single year. So uh, I think uh, the stock to flow ratio of gold is around one and a half percent. So every year there we mine 1.5 uh, percent more of gold. And that is literally basically the scarcest thing that, that as, as scarce as it gets. The second most scarce thing is uh, silver. And the stock to flow ratio of silver is around, I think, 20 percent, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. And the idea is that Bitcoin's stock-to-flow ratio is soon going to be even lower than that of gold. So as an example, let's just use easy numbers. If there was 100 ounces of gold in the world that existed today, yes. over the next 12 months, we would dig up another 1.5 ounce, yeah. right? So yeah. that's the stock-to-flow ratio of how much exists versus how much we're digging up. When it comes to Bitcoin, right? What is the stock-to-flow ratio comparison between Bitcoin and gold? I think right now uh, the stock-to-flow ratio of Bitcoin is higher than gold, mm -hmm. but 
clearly with the halvings that come every four years, uh, that number decreases, decreases, decreases and decreases. And I think in the next couple of years, uh, we're going to have that kind of like some sort of like a flipping, a where, true flipping. Yeah, <laughs> where uh, the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin is going to be re- is, uh, lower than that of gold, which is going to be quite something. So we basically will go to uh, on a stock to flow ratio basis, Bitcoin being more scarce than gold. Yeah. Right. So we already know from a from a macro structure standpoint, Bitcoin is less scarce because of the artificial cap. But then also from a stock to flow ratio, it will become uh, less scarce as well. Which obviously, if you believe in supply de- demand economics, should be positive for Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we get into too deep into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, let's talk about scarcity, right? Because what you're hitting on here is um, gold is the most scarce asset in the world, right? Previous to Bitcoin. Yeah. Sure. Why is scarcity so important to money and to value? Absolutely. I think scarcity is something that a lot of people not, don't, un- unfortunately don't understand, but it is very important, especially when it comes to money. So if we just think that if there were to be uh, an infinite amount of US dollars, for example, then they would all be worthless, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so for money to function well, it needs to be limited in supply. Some people would say there are infinite dollars and it is worthless, but keep going. Yeah. So as a holder or a merchant who is accepting money in return for your goods or services, you really want to have the guarantees and assurances and the conviction in the fact that this money that you're accepting is uh, scarce, it is limited in its supply, or in other words, it is valuable. because. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a funny question uh, that children always ask. Hey, mommy, like, why can't everyone have more money, right? But, like, if the child's wish were to come true, and let's say the amount of money in the bank accounts of every single person in the world were to double, uh, none of these people would become wealthier, you know? None of them would, because, yes, the notional amount of money that they have doubled, but so did everyone else's, you know? So So it's a relative basis. Yeah, exactly. So it's important to understand that Money, the amount of money doesn't really matter. Uh, it's th- what's important is the fact that it stays constant. You have mm-hmm. to know that it is limited in supply. Nobody can arbitrarily just increase or decrease the supply as they uh, at their whim, uh, because everyone else needs to know that if I owe, own like one percent of the total market uh, of the total supply of money, then I will own it uh, tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Because like, who knows? Maybe overnight. There, the, the amount of uh, supply doubles and then my share has decreased, you know? Yep. I, a lot of times I think of uh, there is money and there is wealth, right? Money is the, the unit of account and what we use in terms of how much money do you have. But when you ask somebody how much wealth do you have, one is what is your current share of the existing money supply? When it comes to fiat currency, it's actually pretty hard to identify that because it's a moving target, right? That the circulating supply is a moving target. It's constantly changing, uh, either expanding or contracting, but also wealth as a measurement of uh, acceleration, right? So what I mean by that is if I say to you, how much wealth do you have? You could describe it to me in terms of if uh, there is 2% increase in the monetary supply every year, right? But I am gaining wealth at 200%. Right, there is a, a much different um, kind of trajectory that you're on versus the the inflation. Um, I don't know if that is perfectly uh, if it works perfectly when it comes to fiat currencies. I definitely think it works when you have a scarce capped asset like Bitcoin. Understanding your percentage ownership of the scarce asset becomes very important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
I think it's also it's important to know that we talk about scarcity here and how it's important for function to uh, for money to function well and be limited in its supply, but that's not really the case in the modern world. And ever since 1971, since the Nixon's shock, where uh, basically all the limit all the natural limitations on credit expansion has uh, uh, been basically uh, we we got rid of them mm-hmm. for better or worse, probably for worse. Well, but, and when we broke off the gold standard, yeah. it's important for people to remember it was supposed to be temporary. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. When they said we are going to break from the gold standard, it was we are temporarily going to break. We will come back to it, and obviously we never came back. Yeah, and that basically means that whenever a bank gives out a loan, they create new money and thereby increase the money supply. And let's say you you own a what just for for the argument's sake, you own one percent of the total money supply, mm-hmm. then. A huge amount of loans were giving out, and then the amount, the total money supply doubled. Now that one percent that you owned became a zero point five percent. But you didn't, you didn't even know about it. You were not the one taking the loans. You, you have no uh, business with that. But that's the case. So in today's, in today's world, you simply don't have those guarantees that your money is limited in supply, and that 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 has really great implications. So before we get to Bitcoin, I want to stay on this idea of gold and, and uh, the fiat currency, right? Because there's many people who I think uh, are detractors to Bitcoin or, or maybe even they're, they're sympathetic to Bitcoin, but they uh, they believe that it is a bad argument to make uh, breaking from the gold standard was negative, right? They would say, hey, uh, the use of credit actually built economies. It, it built um, you know a lot of the wealth that the globe has today. What is your response to that, or, or how do you think through uh, the positive and negatives of, uh, of kind of how this has transpired over the last you know fifty plus years? Yeah, so I don't think that inflation is necessary for the running or uh, or the developing of the economy, development of the economy. I think that uh, as I as I already said, like the um, uh, the amount of money doesn't really matter. What matters is the fact that it doesn't change. But the people who argue for inflation, they say like. Two percent inflation is necessary to stimulate the demand, to you know promote industries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because their argument is, if you know that your currency is being devalued on an annual basis, even if it's just a small amount, you are incentivized to spend it. Right? You're either incentivized to take that currency and put it into store of value assets, or you are incentivized to quote unquote stimulate the economy by actually consuming other goods and services. Yeah, but you see, like. What we see in the modern world is that, yes, people are incentivized to consume because clearly their money is worth less tomorrow, so you might as well buy something today. But because you have such a short amount of time to really decide on what you want to buy, people end up buying things that are really, they shouldn't be buying, like like fast food or just stuff, junk. Materialistic yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. But let's say their money didn't depreci- weren't to depreciate as fast because, let's say, the inflation wasn't as high. Uh, then that means that these same people, they would be able to collect some money because they're earning it, they're paid uh, salaries, and now they have some time in order to really think through their uh, investment decisions, their financial decisions, and they can make an investment into a business, they can uh, start something, basically they can make much more prudent decisions with regards to their finances now that they have the time to think about that. Mm-hmm. And this starts, this really initiates the process of civilization and progress because now that the people have the time to make smart business decisions and investments, this will, like, the potential that this has to create more jobs and to stimulate the economy is much bigger than just, like, you going out and buying some McDonald's or some 
shoes that you never needed, you know, just because you know that you need to spend it today. Explain the argument for Bitcoin as digital gold, right? So, so we understand that money is important. Money has always been built on scarcity. Uh, the value derived from gold is pretty self-explanatory and, and well understood at this point. Why Bitcoin is digital gold? Yeah, no, I think that it's a pretty easy way to think of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, some people say it's kind of reductionist, but I think for beginners, it's a, it's, a, it's a good way to think of it as digital gold. So just like gold, Bitcoin's supply is also limited, but even more so, as we already said, because it is strictly limited, 21 million. Like, gold is simply expensive and often unprofitable to mine. However, Bitcoin is literally impossible to mine beyond the 21 million cap, mm -hmm. which is very important. So. Also, gold is physical and clunky, and uh, Bitcoin is digital and borderless. Uh, it is very gold is expensive and uncomfortable to transfer. Bitcoin is digital, and you can literally transfer billions worth of Bitcoin in under an uh, in under an hour with a final settlement, which is just incredible. And I think that what's important to understand is that one of the reasons people really stopped using gold was because gold became very uh, valuable and. It, it was impractical in everyday trade. So you would literally need to scrape off uh, like dust of gold in order to buy your meal, for example. So instead, they used things like copper or silver, even though they were less scarce. Uh, and then we had paper money, which kind of solved this issue because uh, the, the paper money represented the gold and now it could be denominated in any unit. But the problem that that creates is that most of the gold that this paper money represents now sits in some kind of vault, in a centralized vault, uh, that can be eas easily uh, targeted or basically confiscated or whatever. So well, there's no, it's not decentralized. And, and part of this usage argument is, um, I believe this is true, and, and somebody will correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, coins, right? The reason why the coins have ridges around the outside of them is because the ridges show you that no one has basically scraped the coin of dust, right? Oh, yeah. so, so if you have a silver coin, um, you know, or a nickel or whatever it is today, those ridges used to be there because uh, it was a way to have almost a pre-cut amount of a commodity, right, of some precious metal, but those ridges showed that no one had um, screwed around with the amount that was there. Mm -hmm. And so obviously no one's worried about you scraping pennies today, right? For example, um, but but I do think that there, there's a reason why we have a lot of these things, um, and, and it's important to have that historical context. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. So, Bitcoin also solves this issue of divisibility because we know that Bitcoin one Bitcoin is equals to 100 million satoshis, and I'm pretty sure that in the future we won't be really talking in bitcoins. We'll be talking in satoshi terms because mm -hmm. bitcoins will will most likely be much more valuable and it will be impractical. So uh, as they say, when in, a, in the future, when we are driven in our self-flying cars, do you really think that people are going to be carrying around chunks of yellow metal? Like, I don't think so. You mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So, well, that, that's the reason I think a lot of people argue, okay, gold was uh, not possible anymore to use for transactions. Precious metals became very difficult, right? And so uh, we entered into a world where um, there was just better technology available, right? We get the printing press, we, we get all these different technological advances. Uh, and then the idea was, well, rather than you carry around all this gold that's hard to carry, it's not very divisible, etc., why don't I give you pieces of paper 
that represent the gold, mm -hmm. right? And that paper is much easier to carry around. It can be highly divisible. We can print it. We have all these things. Um, I think you believe, similar to me, that paper was great until it wasn't backed anymore, right? Oh, yeah. So the whole idea of going off of the gold standard, we had the technology. We just didn't have the value attached to that technology anymore. Yeah, because banks were incentivized to give out loans in excess of the gold reserves that they had. Mm -hmm. So now there's much more of that paper money uh, as opposed to the gold that actually exists. But without the gold standard, like it doesn't, doesn't matter, matter how you don't need to have any gold. Well, they can print as much as they want. Yeah. Right. Okay. So as we get to Bitcoin as the digital gold, there's obviously uh, a number of advantages I think that Bitcoin has over gold. But I, I think your message is um, that the core value proposition of Bitcoin is very similar to gold. Right. Hard to produce. Uh, it is scarce. Right. It is quote unquote sound money. Mm -hmm. um, it. How do you view the people who say we don't need Bitcoin, we have gold, right? Like they basically say, look, I get that there's some advantages, but gold is still gold and, and, and we don't need to move to a better version of gold because we have the original. Well, I don't necessarily think that you need to get rid of gold per se okay. as of right now. So it's not a binary world. Yeah, of course. I mean, especially at such an early stage of Bitcoin's history. Clearly, it's not It's not like we're going to live in a hyper-Bitcoinized world tomorrow. I think it's all going to take some time and we all need to be patient. But I just think that the people who cling too much to gold and think that there, there's nothing, no technology can ever replace that and Bitcoin can't uh, fight that battle, I think those people should really reconsider what they uh, believe because we are entering a new age where technology and cryptography and all these innovations are really at the forefront and I, I wouldn't bet against Bitcoiners. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't either. You use the term hyper-Bitcoinization. Yeah. Describe what you mean by that because I think people hear that term and they mm -hmm. don't actually know what that means. So hyper-Bitcoinization is basically the idea that in the future uh, we are basically the world is going to converge to using uh, one currency which will be Bitcoin. Uh, and the entire world, one global currency, and that happens to be Bitcoin. Yeah, that, that's the idea. Got it. And uh, you, you referenced something earlier that if that occurs, Bitcoin, an individual Bitcoin, so one BTC, would become incredibly value, uh, valuable in dollar terms. Mm -hmm. And it would be so valuable that for everyday transactions, it would be unreasonable to use something that's worth hundreds of thousands, yep. if not millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Satoshi, which is the decimal places right, of yep. Bitcoin. One, one hundred um, millionth. Yep, becomes actually more value or, or becomes important because that is what you're using for everyday transactions. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Okay. Let's move to Bitcoin supply, right? Because mm -hmm. I've heard you talk before about um, this idea that Bitcoin supply is inelastic to changes in demand. What does that mean? I think that you have to understand that Bitcoin is the first thing whose supply is truly inelastic to changes in demand or in other words, unresponsive to changes in demand. With anything else, including gold, when, whenever there's a spike in demand, the producers of gold, for example, or anything, any other asset in the world, they are incentivized to come to the market and 
dig out or mine or provide more of that gold, more than usual, in order to satisfy this newfound demand. Got so demand can pull supply, yeah. right? It, it can actually uh, incentivize people to increase the supply because they know if they can find supply, there is demand waiting they can and, sell and prices are higher. Yep, yeah, they can the sell price. it for more and get market back to equilibrium and make that profit. Mm-hmm. However... So we just pure supply-demand economics. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. With Bitcoin, however, this is impossible. No matter how much demand increases, Mm -hmm. the supply is still the same. It is still predictable. We all know how it's going to change. And this means that literally the only thing that can change in response to the increased demand for Bitcoin is price. Mm -hmm. And as long as there is demand, the price will keep going up. And that also means the security will be going up. So this is this beautiful uh, positive feedback loop is it's just something incredible. So when I usually talk to institutional investors, these are people who they understand asset classes, they're professional investors, they understand risk reward, they've talked to you know a million managers, uh, and they've thought a lot about macro uh, markets and, and industries and all this stuff. I always have to remind them how supply demand economics work, right? Because it's such a foundational, simple concept that we almost overlook it. It's too boring. Right, and and it's almost like it couldn't be that. It's too simple, right? Right? Exactly. (laughs) And and so as a reminder to everyone, supply and demand is when there's an increase in demand, one of two things can happen, which you're describing. Supply can increase to meet that demand and prices can stabilize. Or if supply does not increase, price increases. And that's exactly what's going on with Bitcoin. And so the reason why that's happening is because there's an artificial cap. The supply cannot increase. And therefore, if the supply cannot increase, there's only one thing that can happen, and that's price. And that's what we've been seeing for the last 10 years. Yep. And so what would your response be to, uh, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate, right? So two things I hear all the time are, one, Bitcoin is not deflationary. It's an inflationary asset because every 10 minutes right or so, there's more Bitcoin that's being produced. Well, technically, it is disinflationary yep. because the inflation rate keeps on decreasing until it becomes zero. Deflationary. And deflationary because coins are going to be lost and mm-hmm. the supply is actually decreasing. So, yep. So basically, the, the structure of the system is deflationary. The monetary supply schedule is disinflationary. For the time being, For yes. Time being. Got it. And then the other argument I hear all the time is, well, you can just fork Bitcoin and create more supply. That wouldn't be the big, that wouldn't be Bitcoin. That would be something else, and you so, don't so d- that. <laughs> d- descri- describe that though. Well, I think we would need a whole new episode uh, to really talk about it. Uh, I don't know if you had uh, Pierre Rochard. I think he could really articulate this really well and talk about the governance system of Bitcoin and the shelling point that we all converge to to say that Bitcoin is Bitcoin, and that is the only Bitcoin that exists. Everything else is not Bitcoin. And they may use the name but, as a marketing ploy, yeah. but it is not Bitcoin. It's not. Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh, okay. And then as you think about this, so you've made an argument that money is important. Gold has historically served as money, right? And there's been variations of gold or representations of gold, but gold has served as the global reserve currency forever, right? Or for the last 5,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we are seeing the, the creation and adoption of a new gold, right? A new value driver that has very similar criteria and, and um, kind of aspects 
it's just a piece of technology that mimics uh, a lot of those things. Right? Does it better? In Does it better? Right. Gold's pretty big market cap. I think it's like seven plus trillion dollars. Seven point five. Okay, seven point five trillion dollars. See, you're way smarter than me and will educate me throughout this entire thing. <laughs> and then Bitcoin though is sitting somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred billion, depending on the day. Right. Yeah. Right now. How, as adoption increases for Bitcoin, what do we see with these market caps? I think that this is an indication that we are still super early in Bitcoin's history. And yes, we know that gold market cap is around $7.5 trillion. But we also have to consider the fact that for the last 50 years, gold has been heavily demonetized. Uh, its price was kept artificially low. So if it wasn't for these reasons, I think that this, it will be more than 7.5 trillion. And as you said, Bitcoin's market cap is around 150 billion right now. That is at least 50 times smaller. Mm -hmm. And people have been disincentivized to hold a lot of their wealth in money or gold or in anything because, well, they want to hold their wealth in something that stores value well mm -hmm. or even increases sometimes. So they sometimes, they mostly choose like stocks, bonds, Real estate is often uh, or all exactly, kinds of stuff, yeah, yeah, all kinds of things. So I believe that Bitcoin, it will not only uh, pull out that value from gold, those from that seven point five trillion and more, because gold used to uh, was demonetized and Bitcoin, it doesn't doesn't uh, is not a victim to the same um, dynamics, but also Bitcoin is going to take a uh, portion of these other markets such as stocks bonds, real estate, because a lot of people, they don't actually need those stocks or that real estate. They don't, they don't live in those houses. They just literally buy it just so that their value, their wealth sits there and doesn't disappear. And if there is Bitcoin, they don't need any, uh, any of that as much, you know, they can just buy Bitcoin and just see it appreciate. And so I'm going to start calling this the Mahavda brother theory, right? <laughs> because you and Murad are the two people who uh, I think have uh, been the most public about this theory. Um, you have done the most work to convince me personally of this theory. Uh, and, and I actually, um, I went from a skeptic to, uh, I am a pretty big believer in this, right? And this idea of uh, today, if I get paid, let's say I have a job, right? I'm, I'm, I'm an average everyday working American or, or any citizen in the world. I get paid in a fiat currency and I sit in my bank account if I just save and I save and I save and I save, and let's say that I save a uh, hundred thousand U.S. dollars, right? It takes me five years, and then I let it sit there for ten years. The hundred thousand dollars is worth less money fifteen years after I started than it was when I first started putting money into the account because of inflation. The purchasing power is devaluing, right? Yes, absolutely. What people are doing, and I think what you're saying here is. They, rather than just save up in a bank account, they take that money and they buy store of value assets, right? They get out of the currency because of the inflationary nature. So real estate, art, stocks, bonds, whatever it is. Yeah, but see, that's the problem. Like these everyday Americans, everyday citizens of the world, they, they specialize in something. They, for example, one is a florist, the other one is a dentist. So why would, why would we expect them to be good at picking out stocks or playing in the in the financial markets, like that's not their job, you know. They weren't educated uh, to serve that role. They were educated to do their. Uh, they they mastered their skill, and they're supposed to be doing that best, whatever whatever that they do. 
they're not supposed to be doing all these things. They're not supposed to be playing uh, these financial games. And but in the world that we live in today, they have no choice. Mm-hmm. They have they have to do it to protect their wealth. Yeah, right. They have to sit at night and just yep. watch Bloomberg. <laughs> and, and so there, there's an argument that Bitcoin is only gold, right? It's only a digital gold, right? So let's say that that is the um, that's kind of I'll, I'll call that uh, level one of the video game. Right. And in level one, that would mean that Bitcoin could rise parapasu to gold market cap, which is 7.5 trillion. And so from 150 billion to 7.5 trillion, big markup. Right. So that's the first stop would be gold's parity from a market cap perspective. The second argument would be Bitcoin could replace money. Right. Mm -hmm. So the global monetary supply that sits somewhere around like, let's call it 90 trillion. Right. People will argue different numbers, but let's just call it 90 trillion. So we go from 7.5 trillion up to 90 trillion. Remember, the denominator, right, never changes because it's 21 million yep. of this equation. So now you're trying to get 90 trillion dollars of value into 21 million Bitcoin. You can do the math. <laughs> what, yeah, big, big numbers, right? But what you're actually arguing is Bitcoin's potential, right? So the absolute bull case for Bitcoin is not that Bitcoin can simply replace gold or simply replace money, is that Bitcoin is a market expanding technology or or an asset, meaning that the global monetary supply will actually grow larger because what you're doing is you're stealing market share back from these store value assets. So that same dentist or florist who took their $100 that they got paid and then started to sink it into real estate or stocks or bonds will no longer be incentivized to go do that. Instead, they will just hold it in that store value asset, which is Bitcoin, as the reserve currency, and therefore they're not necessarily required to make those investments to protect their wealth. Absolutely. How big can this get? Right. What, what is like a, if you the total addressable the, market? The, the total addressable market that you think uh, Bitcoin has the potential to to reach. I think that the total addressable market is at least hundred trillion dollars. Okay, so hundred trillion dollars, which is actually lower than your brother, because your brother, I think, when when I, I said at him, least, I said at, at least, least. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's gonna get a hard time from uh, from his brother there. So <laughs> I, I'm gonna do some math here, and I'm not the uh, the best mathematician, but uh, I think the calculator will do this. So if we do hundred trillion divided by twenty one, you're talking about a four point seven four point eight million dollar Bitcoin price, right? So hundred trillion dollars divided by 21 million. Now, we have to account for there's going to be lost, stolen, uh, destroyed Bitcoin. So, yeah. so it'll likely be higher just given the value. Uh, and, and when um, Murad came on, he had basically, I think the math he had used was 17 million, give or take Bitcoin, yeah, that's, right? I think that's a better And number. I think that he, his numerator was 160 trillion, mm-hmm. right? And, and so uh, between 100 and 160, let's say it goes somewhere in there, other than the investing component of this, right? So now the everyday person doesn't have to learn how to be an investor along with the, their daily specialization. How else would life change, right? What what else would change for that everyday person? I think this is what I've been noticing personally, and this is what everyone who is in Bitcoin talks about. It's all about the time preference. And the time preference is basically this idea of uh, your choices that you make with regards to spending money is it that you want to spend all your money right now or do you want to wait and maybe wait for some time and then do a better wiser investment so people who are involved in bitcoin they have been uh talking about the fact that 
their uh, time preference has been decreasing. So they are no longer wastefully uh, spending money on things that they don't need, be it fast food, be it just like random stuff that everyone is just used to buying because of the consumer society that we live in. So they they have they basically say, and I, I, I could attest to that as well, that the amount of money that I waste has become smaller because I have these disincentives to spend my money because who knows, you know, like in a couple of years, the, the, sa the same one Bitcoin could be worth much more than it is today. So I, I just like just any, anyone is incentivized to wait as opposed to spend it right now. Why would you do that? So I think a lot of people hear the terminology time preference, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, the deflationary nature, the, the idea that um, the incentives change all this stuff. What you described was the microeconomics, right? The, what changes for you as an individual actor within this system? You are uh, disincentivized from spending your wealth because it, the more that you hold, the more valuable it will become over time, right? That low time preference. What does that do to the macro economy, right? So the whole argument that I, I think people would make is an inflationary currency stimulates the economy because it, it causes people or incentivizes them to spend money. When you go to a deflationary monetary uh, structure and you are now incentivized to hoard money or hoard your money, <laughs> right? How do you think about the macroeconomic changes that would occur? So I think this term hoarding, he's a hoarder, has been uh, wrongfully de demonized throughout history. Okay. Because people, once again, they don't understand monetary economics and they just want to find a scapegoat. They just want to blame someone for whatever is happening on in their life. You have to understand that the hoarders, the people who sit on their money, who don't spend it, are the reason why your and mine or anyone else's money, for that uh, matter, is valuable. Mm -hmm. Because people are hoarding money, that is valuable. Anything in the world is valuable because people are willing to hoard it. Mm -hmm. If everyone uh, didn't want to actually hold assets and just like spend them all day long and never actually held them, then every, they, they wouldn't be worth anything. So mm -hmm. you have to be thankful to the people who are the hoarders. They're the ones giving value to your money. Well, I laugh all the time about real estate. Right, people say that well, they're not making more land, right? Yeah. <laughs> where, where I grew up, that was a very common phrase was that, well, they're not making more land, <laughs> and it's because there's scarcity, and people want to hold things that are scarce. Exactly. Right. Fiat currency does not fit that model. Yeah. So I think to answer your other question about how this impacts the macro financial uh, world, you have to realize that what I just talked about time preference on a personal level, this this applies to the whole world as a whole because people and just companies and everyone they will be engaging in more long-term projects as opposed to things that are short-term like interest interest rates won't be as low and random people who want to start reckless projects are not going to give out loans you have you will have to be doing a lot more work and putting a lot more effort into things uh, and that's for the best because there won't be all of these like boom and bust cycles and we won't have all, all the uh, financial crises that arise due to this uh, extra risk that is taken by these people who can they know that they can be bailed out in case something happens by uh, the central bank, by the Fed. or uh, That is all in the world of Bitcoin. That is all impossible. There's no lender of last resort. So one of the arguments that 
uh, I, I've heard you make before, and I think you're making now, that, that is um, really interesting to me, is the non-financial impact of hyper-Bitcoinization, right? And what you're describing here, um, that you've mentioned already, is this idea of uh, a shift from consumption to more minimalistic, uh, you know, kind of uh, preferences in society. So people will um, not go buy all this nonsense, right? Uh, and they'll actually be incentivized to change their spending patterns. Invest into the future. To invest, to hold all this stuff. The other thing um, that I think a lot about, uh, and people get very, um, we will say, uh, worked up when I say this, but, but I, I truly believe this, is... Inflation is the greatest driver of income inequality in the world, right? The two factors that make that true are one, again, if you are somebody who lives paycheck to paycheck and you get paid in cash, you hold your cash in a bank account and it loses wealth. So in the US, it's not that big of an impact. It's only 2% inflation. In other countries, when there's hyperinflation, for example, you can lose majority of your wealth very quickly if you just simply leave it in cash, right? So if you are living paycheck to paycheck, then you are obviously going to be susceptible to that inflationary uh, negative impact. The second aspect is uh, something called wage-adjusted uh, inflation contracts, right? And so the wage-adjusted inflation contract is if you and I are both employees, you get paid $100 an hour, I get paid $100 an hour, but in my wage contract or my, my job says to me, every year we are going to increase your pay 2% because we are going to negate the impact of inflation. So I get paid $100 this year, next year I get paid $102, the year after that, et cetera. You, however, do not have a wage adjusted inflation contract and you are gonna get paid your $100 this year, next year, the year after, et cetera. You psychologically believe you are being paid the same because the number is the same, but because of inflation, you're actually getting paid less and less every year because purchasing power is going away. And so I recently looked at this and uh, what I saw was if the minimum wage followed the same trajectory of Wall Street compensation over the last, I forget if it was like decades, right? Whatever the, the time frame was. The minimum wage would be $33 a, uh, an hour right now. Well, we are much, much less than that, less than one third of that today. And it's because hourly workers do not have inflation adjusted wage contracts, right? And so what I think I'm hearing you say in some of it, and if you add in this inflation as a driver of uh, income inequality is hyper Bitcoinization is not just about financial impact. It's also about socioeconomic impact as well and can improve the world in a way that we probably don't have other tools to do. Oh, definitely. I think that just like we said about the scarcity, if you are paid, I don't know, let's say just for the sake of the argument, one Bitcoin per year or whatever, and this year you have one out of the 21 million Bitcoins, 10 years later or whenever else, you're also going to have one out of 21 million. So mm -hmm. that just shifts the whole paradigm. You're, you are not victim to all the things that you were just talking about anymore. Why do people dismiss Bitcoin? Like, we're sitting here talking, we're both, you know, hyper bulls, and, and we believe that um, Bitcoin is an asset that can uh, that can improve the world uh, and, and also has a uh, incredible financial upside, right? That's our personal beliefs. Um, why are there so many people who disagree with us or, or uh, dismiss Bitcoin? Well, first of all, I think it's super early 
most people they don't realize how early we are they think a lot of people say like oh no no i can't be bothered because the the train is gone it's uh i'm not people have gained have made the gains and that's it uh but no like in the in the grand scheme of things we're very early uh that's my belief so a lot so you're saying there's some portion of people which i would agree with this uh that believe it's a financial asset it's already appreciated so much in the last 10 years that basically all the gains are gone. Oh yeah, they're, they're very mistaken. I think there are a lot more gains to be seen. Well, that's my belief, of course, and this is not financial advice, of course. But these people, they are either, they, they, you need to have some creativity to really be an imagination to see how big this might get. And I think that it might really happen. And in, on another note, I think one of the reasons why a lot of people dismiss Bitcoin is because it is very interdisciplinary. And when I say that, I mean that most people in the world, they specialize in one or maybe two fields at most. Whereas to truly kind of comprehend and like fully appreciate Bitcoin, you need to have a grasp of a, a large number of uh, different fields and disciplines. This includes a little bit of computer science, a little bit of monetary economics, game theory, governance, psychology, sociology, all these different things. And once you literally spend some time reading and understanding how Bitcoin applies to all of these different things, then you start to get the bigger picture and understand that like how this puzzle is put together and it actually makes sense. If you just look at look at it from the computer science point of view or just from the economic side of point of view, then none of that is enough. You need to put those things together and then you realize that we're onto something really, really big. And when you look at it from uh, the bears, right, or the people who completely dismiss Bitcoin, would you say that it is um, a lack of time spent understanding it? Do you think that there's people who have spent the time and they just, quote unquote, don't get it? Do you think it's a generational thing? Like, like, what have you seen in terms of the people that you speak with? What, what is the main driver of the dismissal or the reason why they don't understand? So I think there are lots of factors at play, but I definitely think that the, the generational uh, aspect is definitely there. Some people, like we were talking about gold bucks previously, they just lived their, all their life in this system and like they don't want they don't even have the time to really adjust to all of this and they don't have the patience and they they would rather live in the world that they're used to rather than adapting to this uh this big change and changes are hard especially mentally for people who are older but i mean you have to really look up to the younger generations these are the people who are going to be uh the people who are going to be running the world in the future and these people have grown up playing uh, uh, multiplayer games online having virtual currencies mm -hmm. they they don't know what gold is they don't care about gold chains or uh, coins they care about Fortnite they care about V-Bucks and I believe that soon these are going to be the same people who will be caring about Satoshis well and one of the interesting aspects to me is um a lot of the world is evolutionary, right? And so if you think about we had gold, we realized there was problems, we created these paper, um, you know, pieces of paper that then were backed by the gold, right? So they represented the gold, all this stuff, and we've continued to kind of evolve over time. But if you sit and you think, we have a world today where there's seven plus billion people on the earth, 
a, about half of them, right? I think are the numbers have access to the internet. They're connected through these di- in this digital world where um, the national borders are less important. Doesn't mean that they're not important at all, but but they're just less important. To have 150 plus currencies for all of those people that are all governed by different individuals and different systems, and uh, then have people who speculate on what are going to happen to each one of those. 150 plus currencies. Oh, yeah, the forex market is like five trillion dollars per day, which is huge. It, it just doesn't make very much sense, right? It, it, it's incredibly inefficient, it's incredibly fragmented. And so, if you were to sit there as a technologist or an entrepreneur and say, "What is the largest market that you could disrupt with a piece of technology?" Money is probably the largest market, right? It is half of every single transaction that we all engage in every day. And so from a market cap standpoint, out of financial assets, money is less than half the size of the real estate market, for example, right? But a piece of technology cannot replace a building, right? So this physical building we're in, we can do things like we can replace the paper that shows who owns the building. We can replace uh, the air rights, right? So kind of how we think about the, the 3D world. But the physical building will never be digitized because we need the physical building, right? We can't stand on this floor unless it's physically there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Money is actually the largest asset that can be completely digitized and can be disrupted. And so when you look at it that way, I always say to people, isn't it more efficient? Doesn't it make sense psychologically to you to have one single currency that is global that is digital, that everyone can use, that we no longer have to worry about exchange rates, about different speculations, etc. And the reason why I bring this up is because the response I get is one of three things. I don't care, you don't know what you're talking about, this isn't even important to me, leave me alone, right? It's kind of the complete dismissal. Two is people who say, actually that makes a lot of sense, right, so kind of the two extremes. But then there's this group in the middle and they say, that makes sense theoretically, but governments will never let it happen, right? The government stands to lose a lot of power. The government stands to be hurt by this. What is your response to that, or how do you think through um, kind of Bitcoin and hyper-Bitcoinization in relationship to sovereign money or, or central bank-backed money? Well, I think that this is uh, this point could be argued, and I don't think that most governments are actually going to lose. I mean, of course there are different sides to this, but I think a lot of countries are going to are ha- have to gain uh, have ga- have to gain from Bitcoin and from the world where Bitcoin is uh, adopted, because that means that they are no longer victim to uh, these other countries who use their currencies to uh, uh, in in order uh, for their own advantage. For example, some countries clearly have. I don't know stronger currencies that they can and they can um, have put financial pressure on other countries and that is no or uh, they can have sanctions on countries so none of that is possible no, you can't you can't have these currency wars anymore you can't control other countries by mm-hmm. using your currency your stronger currency or whatever everyone is using the, uh, uh, Bitcoin just like we had with the gold standard and it's a it's a better uh, playing field for a lot of countries how long does this take Right. So let's say that um, you are correct in that Bitcoin becomes the global reserve currency. It becomes that core 
um, store of value that a majority of the world uses and, and it uh, gets adopted in the way that you think. 10 years, 50 years, 2,000 years? Uh, yeah, it's definitely not going to take, if it is going to, it's not going to take as long as, for example, gold took thousands of years, right? But because we live in the age of information, the speed with which everything evolves is much faster. And I think that anywhere from 30 to 50 years, that is definitely a possibility. But so this is not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as they say, it happens slowly and then all of a sudden, you know, you wake up and you realize, oh, wow, really? Everything is denominated in Satoshis? Who knows? That might, might happen one day. So if you and I are lucky within our lifetime. I think so. Right. I think, uh, I think you're describing a world that, um, that many, many people are, are hoping and, and believe will become reality. Uh, before we go, um, I want to talk about this idea that you have around uh, Bitcoin as a store of time. Right? Yeah. Um, it's a sexy phrase. <laughs> what does it mean? So, yeah, a lot of people talk about how Bitcoin is stored energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that even a better articulation of this idea is Bitcoin as stored time. Because, like, we know that, first of all, we need to understand that human time is the most... We can talk about, like, scarcity and we can talk about gold and Bitcoin. All that is great. But at the end of the day, the scarcest thing, it is the fundamentally most scarcest thing is time, human time. We are all allotted... 70 80 90 whatever number of years and unfortunately we can't do anything in the face of uh, of this fact even the richest people even the billionaires even the steve jobs of the world they uh, unfortunately leave us early or wh whenever but they they can't even their billions can't buy them more time right so you have to realize that time is the most valuable thing you have so Every time you go to work or you uh, work for somebody, you basically engage in a voluntary exchange where you give away your very limited in nature, the most scarce good, which is your time, in exchange for money, let's say dollars, right? But wait for a moment. Didn't we just come to the conclusion that time is the most fundamentally scarce thing there is? So whereas money, it is not scarce it is expandable you know uh so this realization is really really is really important because like this means that you're giving away something that is that cannot possibly be recreated like we can't create more of time for anyone i mean yes you can lead a healthier lifestyle etc get the best doctors but chances are you're not going to live more for more than 20 extra years or 15 extra years or whatever so you're giving away something that is absolutely limited in its nature for something that isn't, something that is expandable all the time. And it's, this is an un, I think this is not a fair exchange. So as we already talked about how you have your $100,000 that you made over time, this is not the same $100,000 because of the effect compounds over time, you know? So in the current world, it is impossible to preserve your wealth into the future. Uh, so people are literally forced to work most of their waking life because you know, just as we already said but bitcoin i believe changes this to a large extent because bitcoin it is strictly limited in supply as we said it's disinflationary it's predictable it's eventually deflationary and most importantly just like time 
it is also limited in supply. So whenever you're giving, whenever you work for Bitcoin, you're giving up your most scarcest resource, which is time, for something that is similarly scarce, Bitcoin. And I think that this is a much more fair exchange. So I don't know. Just uh, next time, if somebody offers you to pay your salary in Bitcoin, think twice. Uh, <laughs> think about it. Yeah. So there's a movie that uh, I highly recommend people go watch. Not necessarily because I think it's great acting or because it is um, uh, a great movie plot or anything like that, but because the message behind it um, really resonated with me and it, and it is related to what you're talking about. Yep. The movie is called In Time. Um, with Justin Timberlake. Like Justin Timberlake. And uh, I, I just pulled up here. The description of the movie is, in a future where time is money and the wealthy can live forever, Will Salas, who's Justin Timberlake, is a poor man who rarely has more than a day's worth of life on his time clock. And so in this movie, what's really interesting is um, basically people walk around and they have a clock that is built, a digital yep, clock right that's built on their arm. And you can watch the time tick down. And that time represents the amount of life you have left. And so when you go to work, what literally happens when you walk out of work, they give you more time. Yeah, that's their right? wallet. That's, that's yeah. the wallet. So it's basically a digital wallet, but yeah. it's a time wallet and it goes in, in your arm. And the reason why this movie is so interesting is because the wealthy – Right, the wealth is measured in time. They live forever. Yeah, they right? have like billions of and hours. They of could. Years. They're gonna live literally. You can't imagine how long they can live because they have so much time. And when they pay each other, they can pay themselves. I'll give you three more years. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I, you know, after I watched, I've watched this movie years ago, uh, and, and it's always stuck with me this idea that what if we didn't pay each other in money or in some sort of financial asset, but we paid each other in time? You would change what you do. Right, if I said to you, hey, come on and, and do this podcast or do this video uh, and I'll pay you a year, meaning you'll live a year longer, you probably would run over here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right? But if instead I said to you, hey, will you go and do X, right? do you want to go buy McDonald's and you have to give up a month, is it worth actually buying that McDonald's for a month of your life? Yeah. Well, to some degree, that is what you're doing. Right? When you buy unhealthy food, you are giving up part of your health or your life, right? And, and so I think it's just a really interesting um, framework that, uh, that that more people should use. And so I highly recommend watching uh, watching that movie in time. Yeah, and I think before we end, I wanted to... All right, he, he brought some little something. Souvenir. He brought a souvenir and he wouldn't tell me what this is and he just pulled it out of his backpack. Yeah. I what is this? I think because we talk about Bitcoin as time, okay. that this will make a lot of sense and you'll like this. Oh my God. So basically, this is a clock uh, with a painting. I think uh, this is one of my favorite paintings. Uh, the original is by Salvador Dali. Okay. And it is called The Persistence of Memory. Uh, and the original actually has uh, melting clocks right here. But as you can see, uh, this uh, artist has changed the clocks to bitcoins. And uh, I think that they represent the time that we all have that it is limited and the bitcoin the similarly limited asset is it's a great representation of that so first of all thank you uh, this is really really cool i know exactly actually where i'm going to hang this uh the clock has um a, a piece of art that uh, monsieur just described in the background uh, that, that essentially symbolizes bitcoin as time um who is the artist uh of the, or the original, mm -hmm. it's Salvador Dali. Yeah, I think it's at uh, MoMA, this painting. Got it. And then they've replaced the Bitcoin with... Yeah. Uh, we should try to get 
Salvador Dali's photo replaced with the uh, the Bitcoin version. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is pretty uh, pretty cool. And then um, do you know where uh, where we can other people can get this? Uh, we can attach a link. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll attach a link uh, to uh, in the description for uh, for other people to get. It. This is awesome. Um, all right. So my last question for you before we uh, we get into these rapid fire questions is, what is the biggest risk for this not happening? Right. So this hyper Bitcoinization that you're describing, this idea that Bitcoin is uh, the soundest money in the world, the scarcest asset between now and the finish line, right, or, or that kind of becoming the globally adopted currency or, or store value. What's the most likely thing that screws us up between now and then? Well, I think the biggest risk is still to date is probably regulatory risk. And uh, I think some people, they kind of uh, overemphasize this and think that this is a this is something huge and this will never happen because of reg regulations and what they can do. But I think that this is probably not likely to happen because this would require literally like all of the countries, all the big countries in the world to kind of work together to preclude this from happening. And but I, we know that this is unprecedented. You've never had all the countries that often exist in kind of uh, competitive environments to come together to fight against some cryptographic technology. I, I don't I don't think that I, I think the prospects are 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 uh, are good and promising and we should just continue uh, being here. Well you and I both uh, believe that um, we, we are on uh, on a journey that is likely to uh, to end up exactly how uh, how you're envisioning it. Um, it just takes a really really long time to get there. Right, and I think uh, that the thing that um, is important for people to realize is uh, patience, right? And, and uh, I think Bitcoin is a um, is a masterful teacher of uh, of patience and low time preference. Um, but probably the most interesting aspect to me is this: these market cycles or the kind of boom and bust cycles. Uh, they happen pretty fast. Right. And, um, you know, there was a bunch of people yelling and screaming about, oh, 2018, there was an 85 percent drawdown in the asset. And then literally in the five months, um, you know, following, it goes up 160 percent. And so we see these um, kind of really volatile moments up and down. Um, but when you look out over a long time period, right, you know, two, five, ten years, it's up and to the right. And, yeah. and it's following the trend that you're describing around scarcity. I always tell people, zoom out, look at the big picture. Because everyone is there, like all your friends who, are, who know that you are into Bitcoin or uh, they come to you like, oh, are you happy now? You, you must have lost 85% or whatever, right? But like, I mean, if you have done your research, if you have spent time studying this whole space, you realize that this is only, only temporary and we are going to... I believe see uh, new highs, and you have you have to really zoom out and look at the fact that almost every single year for the last ten years, the you have to look at the uh, the lows of every single year. And I think, for exception of one year, every single year the low the lowest price that Bitcoin uh, goes to has been increasing, has been higher, mm -hmm. and that is very very telling. And I think that just dismiss the people who are there there's always been naysayers and haters that's just common 
I uh, completely agree. Um, all right, so I end each one with rapid fire set of questions. What uh, what do you think the most important company in uh, in Bitcoin and crypto is? Uh, I think there are many. I think I would go with Cash App. That's one of my favorite uh, because these guys they are the first. I think they're the f- one of the first uh, established financial services and businesses that are. Uh, letting their customers uh, seamlessly uh, buy Bitcoin, and they are the number one app on uh, f- uh, the finance app store uh, in the finance section. And my prediction is that they will be the number one app in the app store uh, in the in the next in the next two years for sure, because because we the interest yeah, for Bitcoin. Yeah, because of that. Got it. Um, What's the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could? Mm, well, I think that the the capital gains taxes, for example, in the states, uh, you have to pay taxes. I think if you sell your bitcoins, I think that kind of doesn't make much sense. In some countries, they have uh, said that bitcoin is like a foreign foreign currency. They treat it that way, so there are, there are no these none of these capital taxes. I think that it would be fairer to treat it that way. I think that's one, one, one thing. What's your most controversial thought in Bitcoin or crypto? Probably the fact that Bitcoin is not going to be used for day-to-day payments as much for, for in, the, in the foreseeable future, in the, short, in the short to medium future. But in the, in, the long, in the long term, it will be. But I think for now, this, uh, this aspect of store of value property has to establish itself more, and it's, that's what we're going to see. I think that's fair. Um, what's the most important book you've ever read? Uh, I'm really excited to hear your answer to this one. There are so many. Um, I'll go with two. Uh, I read this book called The Iconoclast okay. by Gregory Burns. I think I, I recommend it to everyone. Uh, it really opens the way you see the world. Iconoclast. Iconoclast by Gregory Burns. Another book that I would recommend is The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. This is more on the philosophical side, but I think it's very, very inspiring stuff. All right. I'll have to, uh, I don't know if I'll read the philosophy one, but... uh, It's actually pretty short. Is it short? Yeah, it's okay. 50 or 60 I enjoy reading, so if you you recommend it, I'll read it. Um, what, uh, What do you think about aliens? Real? Not really. Yeah, I think they do exist. However, however, the chances that they are at a similar point uh, in terms of how civilized or how what what, progr- what stage in progress they are in as us is very small. So they are either a lot less developed or a lot more developed than us. And in the former case, they are unable to make contact with us. And in the latter case, they're laughing probably, at us. They're laughing. It's not their. Pri- it's not a priority for them. But I think that one thing that should give us hope uh, that I think is worthy of their attention if they are more developed than us is Bitcoin. I think <laughs> that if they see that the humankind was able to come up with something like this, then they, they are definitely interested. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I have not had anyone talk about, um, you know, kind of a, a 3D way of looking at it, right? So you can say there's a binary, do they exist, do they not, right? And then there's the... Um, will we discover them or will they discover us type 
uh, conversation, but this idea that they may exist, yet we are at different stages of development in kind of the uh, the life cycle, humanity versus whatever um, that their sentient beings are, uh, is interesting. Um, and it almost plays into or relates to this idea of like a simulation, right? Where if they are so much more advanced than we are, are we the ones who, you know, we're playing the video game, right? Versus, uh, which is uh, it's a little scary to think about, right? If, uh, if there's a species that is out there that is so much more advanced than we are that, uh, that they're kind of laughing at us. Um, if, uh, if that's true, it kind of makes you pause for a minute. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> what uh, what one question do you have for me to uh, to end this thing? Um, what is your biggest takeaway from being in the in Bitcoin? I'm gonna cheat. And I'm gonna give two answers. Uh, the first is um, how little understanding and education there are around just money, mm-hmm. right? So. Why is it valuable? Where did it come from? How is it created? How is it governed? Uh, what are the positives? What are the negatives? You know, what could be changed or improved? All, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but also in that bucket, I put just personal finance, right? I mean, I see people making ridiculous mistakes. Um, you know, the, the high degree of consumerism, uh, especially in the United States, you know, all of these things that, um, again, I think are... Uh, uh, tangentially related to when you see this new form of money and you get um, kind of pushed into the rabbit hole uh, by somebody that you know, you begin to spend the time, energy uh, to understand money, why it's valuable, etc. So I think that's the first thing. It's just um, it's very, very misunderstood. The second thing is um, it's really forced me to think hard about uh, automation um, and software and the reliance that humans will have on this stuff. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, I think most people, most young people believe it is inevitable that we will trust algorithms or software over other humans, right? If I said to you, pick a good song for me, versus Spotify. Spotify actually has a better shot at doing it just because it's listened to so many hours and the machine learning is so good, right, that, that it probably will predict what I want to listen to better than you will, mm-hmm. right? Same thing with Google Maps. If I say, hey, give me directions to Harlem, it's pretty far away, right? You may know kind of at a high level, but turn by turn, the machine's going to be better, right? If I ask you a question, you'll have answers to some questions, Siri or Google has answers to almost every question, right? Um, and, and so every aspect of our life, whether it's fun, entertainment, value creation, right, work, all stuff, we are seeing software and automation become more prevalent and more trusted. Money has been immune or insulated from that. And so with the creation of Bitcoin, what I normally tell a lot of these institutional investors is, Sitting here today, if I gave you $100 of value and I said, place your bets, would you place 100% on the U.S. administration being the best governor of money? Or would you be willing to place a 1% bet, 2%, 5 10 50 99% bet that a software system or an algorithm could do it better? 
And when you put that framework in place around, do I trust the emotion, the bias, the greed, the fear, you know, all of these human um, kind of uh, aspects that drive our decision-making that we know is fundamentally flawed, do I trust that to govern money? Or do I trust an algorithm that is immune to all of that? I happen to be very lucky to be born when I was born, where I was born, look the way I am, be educated the way I am, etc. To think that I was able to have these questions because I saw the global financial crisis, I understood what was happening, I wasn't personally affected very much because I didn't have a lot of assets right, to, to put at risk. But it led me to believe that maybe these people aren't the best to do this stuff. And so I'm still young enough to see the new technology, see the software, trust algorithms, do all this stuff, where you get this kind of intersection of, I don't trust the humans, and I trust the algorithms, and I understand there's problems with the financial system, and this system looks better, right? And so it's the, the kind of intersection of all these different aspects that lead me to a very simple framework. Would you put 100% of your wealth, right? Would you put... 100% on humans, 0% on software. I'm not saying you have to be 100% on software, 0% on humans, but you probably shouldn't be binary in either direction. You should get off right. zero, right? Get off zero. And so that that literally was the, the kind of driver of that idea was just get off zero exposure, even if it is literally 10 basis points. We're talking about such a small amount, right? The second that you do it, because it is volatile, because you have assets at risk, you pay attention and you get comfortable and you gain confidence, right? And you begin to build trust and that and 10 educated. basis points. Yep. And that 10 basis points becomes 50, then 100, right? Then 1,000, right? And it just continues to grow from there. And so I think that that is, um, you know, kind of the big takeaways are people don't understand money. And two, we're not talking about um, anything more than do you want human governed money or do you want software governed money? And to me, um, there is a very strong argument, and I actually think a higher probability of success for software-based money than human-based money. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see this all play out. But uh, but I think we're just incredibly lucky to uh, to be in the places that we're at, and uh, and to kind of I feel like we just know a secret, right? Absolutely. I think that we're all early, and this is going to be a long journey. And uh, from time to time, it may be may be bumpy, but I think in the in the in the big picture, this is this is an absolutely fascinating time to be alive. Absolutely. So listen, uh, you're welcome anytime you want. I've got a new clock that I'm going to uh, to hang up here and uh, and remind myself to uh, stop trading my time for uh, for nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I really appreciate you coming to do this uh, early in the morning, and uh, we'll stay on for a few minutes to answer some questions for the live stream. But uh, thank you so much, and we'll do it again soon. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.